You're listening to Derm Consult on ReachMD. On this episode, sponsored by Lilly, we'll hear from Dr. Natasha Meshinkovska, who's an associate professor and vice chair for clinical research in the Dermatology School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the chief scientific officer at the National Alopecia Areata Foundation in San Francisco. Dr. Meshinkovska is here to give us an overview of some common challenges encountered when managing patients with alopecia areata. Let's hear from her now. The prevalence of alopecia areata is thought to be about 2% and rising. The rise is thought to go along with the rise of other autoimmune conditions that we're seeing. It is seen worldwide and it is seen in both men and women. We think that it's equally present in both genders, but as of recent studies, maybe a little bit more common in females. It affects people of all ages, but the average age tends to be around 30, 31 to 36 years old. It is present worldwide, and some continents may have a little bit of a higher incidence and prevalence than others, and that may be true particularly for Africa and South America. When it comes to the United States, studies from the National Alopecia Areata Foundation Registry do show higher prevalence of the condition among uh, African-American patients in comparison to Caucasian and Asian Americans. Some of the most common gaps that clinicians have about this condition is that it's not just a cosmetic condition, that it's actually a medical disease that tends to um, happen with other autoimmune conditions. For example, about 30 to 60% of patients will have a comorbidity of atopy. What does that mean? Things like eczema or atopic dermatitis, allergies, and even asthma. And what we're learning is that actually treating and controlling these may actually lead to better treatment and control of the hair loss associated with alopecia areata. Another thing to really be on the lookout with patients is that they may have other autoimmune conditions. So in adults, maybe screening for hypothyroid conditions, and then being on the lookout for inflammatory um, conditions of other origins, for example, arthritis, um, vitiligo, um, celiac disease, and even diabetes in some patients. And the last thing, but really very important thing, is just the mental toll this condition can have on patients' well-being, because it does affect people at the prime of their life, but honestly, it can be very, very devastating at any age. The time, it's very important for one's self-identity and the way one presents to the world. It's very difficult for us as clinicians to um, measure the severity of hair loss because someone can have a very little hair loss in someone's eyes, but it can be right in front of their head and that can impact their well-being severely. So that's very, very important thing that we should all keep in mind. So I think the barriers that we now face as clinicians who treat alopecia areata are probably twofold. One is that we have to inform our patients that are new treatments available on the market. These treatments are going to be systemic. They are going to be immunosuppressant. So knowing how they work and knowing the long-term impact on patients and their side effects are something that we have to first understand and then discuss with patients and monitor them closely. But notifying patients that are treatments is really one of the barriers. The second is going to be the cost of these medications because they're new, because um, they work well for these conditions. We have to make sure that access 
and then is there and that they can be affordable. But I think I'm very hopeful for the future of alopecia areata and all the new treatments that are coming up. And um, hopefully all of these uh, challenges are gonna be something that we can all overcome together. This episode of Derm Consult was sponsored by Lilly. To access other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com slash dermconsult, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.